Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hundreds of people disappear in the Canadian wilderness every year. Many are never seen or heard from again. Some are found in various stages of decay, days, weeks, months or even years after they disappear. Few are found alive. In the January of 2011, my friends and I became part of those statistics. The trip we had planned was an outdoor hiking, camping, wilderness adventure. We were all in our early 20s and most of us having recently graduated from college. We were eager to take this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity before heading out into the real world. January seemed like the ideal time for us as it allowed us to save up the money after graduating and was just after the holiday season while not yet deep winter in Canada. Now I admit none of us were really experienced in hiking or camping but the older members of our party had been camping before so we relied heavily on them for guidance. We had also heard that Canadian people were very kind to tourists and expected to make friends out on the trail who would help us if anything bad happened. When we arrived, we weren't disappointed. Everyone we met was helpful and nice. It was a bit colder than we expected it to be, but it didn't dampen our experience. About a week into our trip, we experienced our first trail closure. It was intended to be a three-day hike. However, severe weather was expected, therefore the trail was tagged as off-limits. To say we were disappointed, it was an understatement. We stood for a while at the trailhead, complaining amongst ourselves because, as far as we could tell, the weather was perfect. Bright sunshine, no clouds in the sky, no wind. We came to think that the trail closed sign was for days past and someone had just forgotten to take it down since the area was so remote. This is why we made the decision to ignore the warning and venture out regardless. It's very easy to disobey a warning that you believe to be unnecessary and even more so when no one is around to see you disobeying the aforementioned warning. I still think about that trail-closed sign occasionally. I see it when I sleep, and sometimes when I daydream. Passing it by is the moment I have cemented in my mind as the worst mistake I've ever made, and it haunts me repeatedly. In my imagination, we turn back with disappointment. In reality, we walk on obliviously. We chatted light-heartedly. My friend Tim, who is six foot two, solid brick, he made jokes endlessly, and I held onto my boyfriend Daniel's arm as we walked across the crisp snow. We didn't see any wildlife at that time, 
but we did come across what we thought to be another group's trail. We walked along their path, because it was easier to walk where someone else had already trampled the snow, and because we hoped to catch up with them. It reassured us to know that we weren't the only ones out there who disobeyed the warning sign, and somehow this justified our decision. Their trail led upwards into the mountain at a steep rate, and we noticed it wasn't following any trail markers. We had a brief conversation then about whether or not it was a good idea to continue following them. But the decision to stop or not was made for us, as Sven, the eldest group member, who had been our scout, Sven announced the trail ended just over the next rise. I didn't believe him at first and insisted on going to see for myself. Truthfully, I thought he had just lost the trail and I would somehow be the one to find it. However, that wasn't the case. Instead, it was exactly as he had said. Just over the next rise, the trail stopped. It didn't peter out naturally or change direction. It just stopped. As if the group before us had decided spontaneously to stop walking at that exact spot and had disappeared as well. Sven and I exchanged nervous glances, and it was then I realised that he had been hoping I would be able to find the trail. But looking around, I could see that there was really nowhere else for them to have gone. We were fairly high up in the mountain by now. The snow wasn't terribly thick, but low clouds had blocked out the sunlight, giving the area a grey ambience and limiting visibility to the immediate vicinity. There was a thin forest of tall dark trees to one side and the cliff face of the mountain on the other. It really was as if they had just vanished. We returned to the main party quite spooked, with the slight quickness in our step that no one else seemed to notice. In the time we had been gone, the group had set up camp. Three brightly coloured tents were set up facing a small fire. Tim and his girlfriend Nina were rolling a second log into place for seating, and Daniel was preparing a stew. This was immensely comforting. There was something about having others around and a fire burning that made you feel safe. When asked about the trail ending, Sven and I both agreed to tell the others that snow had just obscured the trail, not that it had just vanished. As the night went on, we ate and we drank. It snowed lightly, and eventually we couldn't see anything past the light of our fire. We were taking turns telling each other spooky stories, so when Nina suddenly put a finger to her lips in a shh motion, we all quietened down with joyful anticipation. We waited for her to begin some tale of horror. She was the naturally quiet one of us, so we expected her to have the best story. But instead she murmured, Did you hear that? Tim and the others laughed at her, saying she was going to have to do better than that. But I felt a chill run down my spine. She didn't seem to be trying to scare us. Quiet and listen, I told them. And the group settled into silence. For a long moment, we listened to the faint sounds of snowfall and a slight breeze blowing through the branches of the nearby forest. 
We then heard it. Light footfall on the snow. Who is out there? Tim demanded, standing up. He was easily the biggest of us, and I think he felt bad for making fun of Nina initially. His voice was deep and quite intimidating. He received no reply. But we did hear something run back into the woods. We waited a few more minutes in silence before any of us were brave enough to speak again. We didn't hear anything else, so we assumed now that it was maybe a small bear or something like that, and that Tim's sudden outburst had scared it away. This realisation killed the mood, but was at least comforting enough to allow us all to retire to our tents to sleep. When I woke in the morning, it was very bright outside, and that in turn made the interior of Daniel's and my tent unbearably blue. I got up while shielding my eyes with my arm and stumbled out of the tent. I could hear others were awake already and speaking in hushed tones, though they became quiet as I approached. The tension in the air was palpable. Looking around, I noticed some of our supplies were strewn about, and the fire pit was covered in dirt and snow. This snapped me out of my groggy state. What happened? I asked, dumbfounded. We were hoping you knew, Tim grumbled. Someone tried to come into my tent last night. I scared them off by throwing my backpack at them. Now this mess this morning, Sven added. He was the only one of us with his own tent, as Tim and Nina were together, and Daniel and I were also together. It was clear now that we weren't alone on this mountain, and whoever was with us wasn't friendly. This made the decision to end the trip early an easy one. We decided to turn back and stay at the hostel for a few days instead. We packed up quickly and marched back down the mountain in silence. We walked for a few hours before realising we were lost. Remembering the day before, We followed the trail of what we assumed to be fellow hikers rather than the trail markers. We cursed our own stupidity. The endless white expanse ahead looked the same forward and back. Our only guiding landmarks were forest and the mountain itself. At midday we stopped for lunch. Eating then was significantly less satisfying for the mood overall was dampened. While we ate, I just stared into the forest. Daniel stayed close to me, but he kept his attention focused on the ground. The others, I'm assuming, did the same. It was then I noticed movement between the trees. Something, multiple somethings, were darting quickly between the tree trunks. It was hard to make out exactly what they looked like. Fairly small, I would say. Almost ape-like, at least in the way they moved. Wordlessly, I pointed them out to the others and we all agreed to move on. From then onward, we were never truly alone. Whenever we stopped for a break, these things came closer. When we moved, they seemed to keep more distance. Either way, they were terrifying. We agreed that we should not run in case that triggered some chase instinct or something. But that alone was very difficult. 
Every time I happened to see one skitter across the snow behind us, I wanted to run and I'm sure I was not the only one. The second night closed in on us way too fast. We weren't prepared at all. We rushed to set up all three tents, though all of us slept in the middle one together. We lit two fires and wedged ourselves into the small overhang to try and create a sense of safety. With all five of us in one tent, it was quite cramped, but it did feel safer. I slept for a short time, but woke up to the sound of light scraping against the fabric of the tent. I wasn't the only one awake. I think we all were, but in the darkness, I couldn't see anything. Get dressed, I heard Sven whisper, and we all started putting on our hiking clothes as quietly as we could manage. I had just pulled on my second shoe, and we heard what sounded like thundercrack in the near distance. The creatures outside the tent scuttled away from our tent quickly, and I knew that was not a good sign. Outside it sounded like a jet engine taking off, only the sound seemed to be coming directly towards us. I heard Nina shouting for us to all run, and I took hold of Daniel's arm. We ran out into the night blindly. I think Sven was somewhere close to us, but I'm not sure which direction Tim and Nina went. We ran as hard and fast as we could. The shoe I hadn't quite done up fell off, but I did not slow down. What we didn't know then, it was an avalanche. We had no idea what it was. The monstrous roaring all around could have been an angry dragon awakened from its slumber for all we knew. The combination of the deafening sound, darkness and bitter cold as we scrambled half-dressed in all directions Praying we were running the right way was completely disorientating. Something hard hit my legs and I felt myself get swept away. Daniel's hand slipped from mine and we tumbled helplessly in the tidal wave of snow. I vaguely remember hitting something solid, a tree I guess, and then nothing. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. When I woke up, it could have been minutes, hours, or even days later. I had no way of knowing. There was pain in one arm, but reaching up with the other, I could feel open air. 
When I dared open my eyes, it wasn't dark anymore, though it was definitely early morning. In a panic, I struggled to dig myself out. I shouted for the others, and when I stopped to listen, I heard Sven calling as well. The relief I felt was instant. I was not alone. I crawled across the snow to where I could hear Sven. He was only a few feet away, and I realised he was buried. Frantically, I dug to free him. I'd never been more grateful to see another human being in my whole life than I was in that moment. He was largely unharmed, though bruised, and we concluded my arm was most likely broken. As soon as we were able to, we searched for the others. Our calls ran out across the mountaintop unanswered for hours. We found one backpack, but failed to recover any of our other supplies. As we trampled over the snow, we spotted a crouched over figure in the distance. Nina. We called to her, but she didn't answer. When we reached her, she was emotionless and didn't acknowledge our arrival. The snow around her was scuffed and bloodied. Beside her was a bloodied stick, and in her lap she held what remained of Tim. He was without doubt deceased. Only his upper torso and left arm were intact. The rest of him was stripped of flesh to the bone. It was a horrible sight. They have eaten him, she whispered softly. None of us knew what to say. Eventually, we were able to convince Nina to leave his body. We marked it with two large branches tied with a scarf. By this time, I could no longer feel my foot, and we still hadn't found Daniel. To make matters worse, the wind was picking up. We knew we needed to find shelter and fast. Given our options, we decided our best hope for shelter was amongst the rocky outcrop that we had passed not long before. It was as we made our way back toward it that I spotted what we had missed the first time around, the tip of a brown beanie buried in the snow, the same brown beanie Daniel was wearing. I frantically called out to him as I rushed towards the spot of colour. No response. As I reached it, I snatched it up out of the snow, and to my disappointment, I became aware that the beanie was on its own. Daniel was not with it. I noticed then that the surrounding snow was scuffed, and hope kindled in me that he had crawled away into the forest for shelter. I struggled to follow the trail, only vaguely aware of Nina and Sven behind me. Daniel's path led directly towards a large tree. From a distance, I could see a small piece of fabric near the tree trunk, and among the thick branches, I convinced myself I could see a huddled figure. He never answered my calls for him, and as I got closer, my heart began to sink. I wasn't looking at the base of the tree. I was looking at probably the midsection of the tree, and there was no person huddled under it. It's a common phenomenon where powdery snow builds around the base of trees. If you don't know what you're looking for, it's easy to forget that snow can be metres deep and that the trees you're looking at are in fact halfway buried in snow. These conditions mean that around the tree trunk forms a deep well that can be quite difficult, if not impossible, to escape on your own. 
Many people die each year from falling into these things where no one else around them can hear them calling for help. They are called tree wells. And as I grew closer, my eagerness was slowly being replaced with despair. The fabric I could see was hem of his pants, the huddled figure, nothing more than tree branches and wishful thinking. My Daniel was dead, crumpled unnaturally, face first into the tree well. It was painfully obvious that he had broken bones as several of his limbs were twisted at the most unnatural angles, but it was impossible to say whether or not he had died on first impact or slowly suffocated all alone. It was all I could do but to hope for the first scenario over the second. When Sven and Nina caught up with me, their expression said it all. There was nothing more we could do. We marked his position the same way we had Tim's and made our way to the rocky area. Perhaps the only piece of good fortune we had was that we found a small cave to take shelter in. We lit a fire at the entrance to keep those things away and to melt snow with. We could never melt enough snow to quench our thirst, but it was a start. We stayed huddled in that cave together, hungry and cold all night. I kept a firm grip on Daniel's beanie. Somehow it brought me comfort, and I was able to sleep. When I awoke next, it was dark, but the fire was still burning dimly, so I can't imagine I was asleep long. Beside me, Nina and Sven were also asleep. Sven looked particularly cold. He was shivering, even in his sleep. The backpack we recovered had no additional blankets or clothes, only cooking supplies in a flint, which was lucky enough in itself. Stiffly, I moved to put some more wood on the fire from our small supply we had gathered. However, to my surprise, I noticed someone sitting at the very front of the cave, just past the fire. Their back was to me, and I then realised they seemed to be eating something. It was obnoxiously loud. I don't know how I didn't notice it sooner. All the cracking and the slurping. I couldn't think what they had. I didn't even know we had food. Gradually it dawned on me that I actually didn't even know who was sitting there. Both Sven and Nina were still asleep behind me. The figure moved slightly, leaning back briefly towards the light of the fire, as they tore a chunk off whatever they were eating. It was then I was able to make out a flash of colour. They were wearing a brown beanie. Daniel's beanie. I felt a wave of terror rush through my veins. I suddenly felt very lightheaded. How did they get Daniel's beanie? Who, or what, was sitting beside our fire? No sooner had I thought that thought, then the thing turned to me. Its eyes were white pinholes in its head, reflecting the orange of the fire coals. Its mouth had no lips, so I could easily see its mangled teeth. Half-dry, bloody smears covered its mouth, chin and hands. This was one of the things that had been following us, but it was bigger, much bigger than those that had lurked in the distance. This one was the size of a human, with disproportionate limbs. With a new wave of nausea, my eyes came to rest on what it had been eating. 
It was an arm, a human arm, half frozen, half thawed by the fire, and partially stripped of flesh to the bone in places. The arm didn't bleed freely, but it was oozing blood slowly as it defrosted. The familiar remains of a thick coat still hung in tattered places from it. I had no doubt it was Daniel's arm. Slowly the creature moved. It stood in a hunched position and waved the arm at me, as if it was waving in greeting. A wide smile played on its face. How anything can smile without lips is beyond my description, but somehow it did. Scared witless, I fumbled backwards, tripping over Nina and Sven, waking Nina in the process while Sven remained undisturbed. By the time I could coherently tell Nina that there was something in the cave with us, the thing had vanished. She believed me. There was nothing either of us could do except stoke the fire for comfort. I don't remember falling asleep again that night. However, when I awoke, it was dull daylight. The weather had closed in while I slept and the blizzard made it impossible to see far past the cave entrance. Sven was in even worse shape by this time. He had stopped shivering and we were unable to wake him. His breathing was extremely slow. Seeing his large figure curled up as small as he could was heartbreaking. Nina and I stayed close to him, trying to keep him warm with our body heat, but I think we soon realised at that point that he wouldn't make it. In the end, we stayed, all three of us, huddled up together for an impossibly long time. I watched shadows of the creatures moving back and forth just outside the cave. Occasionally, a small one would stop and come closer, bobbing curiously at the entrance of the cave, watching us before skittering off back into the white oblivion. I'm not exactly sure when Sven passed, I do remember I broke off one of my toes by mistake. Honestly, I didn't even feel it. It was so frostbitten by then. We remained in the cave for the entirety of that day. I was losing strength and I felt for sure I was going to die as well. Nina went out to get more wood for the fire during the brief period in which the blizzard let up, while I remained sullen in my place. My arm was completely useless. Even the slightest movement set waves of pain up my shoulder, and I knew I couldn't walk on my frosty foot. So when Nina returned, I told her quietly that she needed to go. I thought she would get further on her own and have the greatest chance of survival. However, she refused to leave. Instead, she insisted that it was better for us to stay together, and that I needed protection in case those things came into the cave again. I knew why her and Tim had always made a good couple. She was feisty. The savage smile she gave when she held up her tried and tested stick actually gave me hope that we would make it. I knew if anything came in, she was going to beat the crap out of it. We huddled close for warmth and kept the fire burning. I faded in and out of consciousness several times. Nina brought me warm melted snow to drink and kept insisting that I stay awake, even as it got dark outside. To be honest, her persistence was annoying. 
However, I believe without it, I wouldn't have lived. Eventually, the fire began to burn low. The wood Nina was able to get wasn't going to last us the whole night, and we both knew it. It seemed then that the creatures outside knew it too. Slowly, they crept in closer as the fire grew lower. Several pairs of reflective eyes leered in at us. Nina waited like a cat, ready to pounce with her stick in hand. Any time one tried to cross the threshold of the fire, closer to us, she swung the stick at it without fear. The first couple of times, she actually connected, sending the creatures all scuttering back like scared meerkats before they cautiously regained their composure to advance again. Several hours passed this way, or at least I think it was hours, before we saw the big one again. It lumbered into the cave without fear, smiling and making a wet clicking sound from the base of its throat. Nina took a strip of torn fabric from Sven's shirt and wrapped it around her stick, then pushed it into the fire. We both knew the fabric wouldn't burn long without an accelerant, but it was better than nothing. She stood facing the thing with her flaming stick as warning, while it hissed at her. I could see that Nina was trembling in fear, but she stood over me, protecting me nonetheless. Seeing she had a weapon, the thing seemed to regard her for a moment, Then it seemed it decided to ignore her as it moved towards the corner we placed Sven in. As it grabbed his leg, she swung at it. Her aim was good, and she struck it square across the face. It howled in pain, then lashed out viciously. This next part, I'll admit, I don't remember very well. It's more like I remember portions. I can clearly remember Nina lining up a second hit as it lunged at her. Chunks of hot coal sprang in all directions as the thing ran right over the fire. I couldn't tell you if her second swing landed its mark or not. I closed my eyes. But the screaming, wet crunches, tearing of flesh, and the sound of Nina struggling for her life is forever burned in my memory. I expected to die that night. However, when the sun rose, I was alone in the cave. Sven's body was gone. Nina was no more than the bloody trail leading out the cave, and the fire was faintly glowing embers. I faded in and out of consciousness for what could have been an eternity, before I heard human voices, Canadian accents, felt myself being lifted and carried. When I regained consciousness, I was in a hospital. My foot was amputated, as well as almost all my fingers and definitely all of my toes. My arm was in a cast all the way up to my shoulder, but I considered myself lucky to be alive at all. I still have ongoing health concerns related to my experience. However, that's irrelevant now. Canadian authorities were able to find me as a local avalanche enthusiast had been flying a drone over the area and spotted something unusual in the snow. It seemed even in death Nina saved me. When she had gone out for wood, she left an X of sticks outside the cave with Sven's jacket attached. This is what the drone saw flying over the area that eventually led to the search team finding me. 
they were never able to recover my friend's bodies, and they regarded my account of events as hallucinations brought on by dehydration and hypothermia. I returned to Australia an empty, broken person. Nowadays, I barely leave my house. <laughs>